Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new book that just released from Hanover Square Press called Femina, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It by Dr. Yanina Ramirez. The Middle Ages are seen as a bloodthirsty time of Vikings, saints, and kings, a patriarchal society that oppressed and excluded women. But when we dig a little deeper into the truth, we can see that the Dark Ages were anything but. Oxford and BBC historian Yanina Ramirez has uncovered countless influential women's names struck out of historical records, with the word femina annotated beside them. As gatekeepers of the past ordered books to be burned, artworks to be destroyed, and new versions of myths, legends, and historical documents to be produced, our view of history has been manipulated, and women of the Middle Ages have been almost entirely written out until now. In Femina, Dr. Ramirez invites us to see the medieval world with fresh eyes and discover why these remarkable women were removed from our collective memories. Femina by Dr. Yanina Ramirez is available now. Pick up your copy at your local bookstore. Hi, everyone. Renee here. I am recording this at the end of February, and I have had just a stellar reading experience this year so far. I have seven five-star books, which I'm pretty generous with my stars in general, but even that is high for me. I'm going to start with Goodbye, Earl, a revenge novel by Lisa Cross Smith. I cannot stop thinking about this book. I can't stop singing the song in my head and out loud. I think it would be my karaoke song if I had one. I don't karaoke. If you're not familiar with the song, it's by The Chicks. It, it came out in 1999. It is about a pair of best friends who kill an abusive husband. Now, this book is loosely inspired by that song. And if you're a fan of the chicks like I am, you will see all sorts of references to the chicks songs, to them themselves. And it is such a fun read. So this book is exactly what it sounds like. It's a revenge novel. It's a group of four friends in the South who come back together after like 15 years. And they're there for one of their little sister's weddings. They're reconnecting, they're experiencing their small town for the first time again. A couple of them have moved away, a couple of them have stayed, and they're kind of relearning each other's quirks and habits and lives. Meanwhile, we get flashbacks to their youth, and you can see some of the trials and tribulations they went through over the last 15 or 20 years, including entanglements with intimate partner violence. And that's where the Goodbye Earl inspiration comes in. They call these men Earls, men who do bad things to their partners. So yes, content warning for intimate partner violence. By the end, I was absolutely sobbing. This was like, do you know the Bette Midler movie Beaches? This was like Beaches level of tears, like snotty face. And I'm not a crier. Like anyone who knows me knows that I don't cry like ever, but this book (laughs) had me in fetal position. (laughs) So anything that gives me feelings like that, five stars. I loved this book. 
Now, my next five-star read is The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. I should tell you that the first two here are early reader copies, so they don't come out for a while yet, but they are totally worth the pre-order, including this one, The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. It is if Knives Out, The Great British Baking Show, and Only Murders in the Building had a baby, (laughs) it would be this book. This is the perfect cozy mystery. It is very deliberately representative of the Great British Baking Show, except it is set in the Northeast in a big mansion and someone dies. You don't find out who. But this is told from multiple points of view, from the contestants, from the host. And even though gullible me saw the ending, saw the quote-unquote twist, it's not much of a twist, saw the resolution and ending from a mile away, it was such a fun hang just to be with these characters. And I think that if you are a fan of Bake Off, if you're a fan of Knives Out, you're going to love the way that all of these characters come together. And what I appreciate most is the relationships. It's what I like about Bake Off, right, is that the relationships and Knives Out, now that I think of it, you don't expect the people to become friends who become friends, right? Like, the interplay between two completely disparate characters on the outside and how they become friends and build this relationship, this is what's replicated in this book that gives me all of those fun vibes. And you know what? I would say the only murders in the building do that, too. You don't expect Selena Gomez's characters to be friends with these old guys. Anyways, I adored this book. It made me laugh. It made me want to come back for more. It made me hungry. The baking details are fantastic. And it was one of those books that I couldn't wait to get back into. So that was The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. The next book that got five stars from me, you heard Mariquita and I talk about this ad nauseum. It's Your Driver is Waiting by Priya Guns. I'm not going to say much about this right now because you can go back and listen to Mariquita and I discuss this book. And just going to say, this was refreshing. It was unlike anything I'd read before. It was funny. It was scathing. And it was uh, completely unexpected. And a completely unexpected five stars. So go back and listen to that episode. I'm about to out myself as like a not very good book club host here. But I finally got around to reading Crying in H-Mart by Michelle Zahner. Which, if you're keeping track at home, was our January 2022 book of the month. I didn't read it then, obviously. I listened to it on audio this year, and I I get the hype. I, yes, it's a food memoir. Yes, it's a grief memoir. But mostly, it is beautiful writing and storytelling told by a woman with big ambitions and a big heart who is flawed, but writes beautifully. I mean, I'm not surprised that her music does so well because... She, at her core, is a writer. Michelle Zahner is a writer. I found myself wanting to go back and listen to segments of it because it was just so beautifully rendered. And this book deserves all of the buzz that it gets. I think even if she weren't a you know, so-called celebrity. But honestly, I didn't know who she was until this book came out. But you know, Japanese Breakfast, her band, is getting a lot of buzz these days. But even if that weren't her kind of career path and what she's in the spotlight for. I think this book is so much more than a celebrity memoir. It is a beautiful work of literature that 
tells the story of a woman straddling multiple cultures and trying to be a good daughter, a good human. It's just lovely. So Crying in H. Bart, Michelle's Honor. Excellent. Another book that is backlist or came out a couple years ago, but I finally got around to is Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jesse. So I loved Homegoing. That's Yaa Jesse's first book. And I wasn't sure what to expect from Transcendent Kingdom. I knew it was about a grad student in the sciences. I wasn't expecting deep dive into our main character and her struggles with her mother's mental mental health, tragedy in her family, again, being multicultural. Her family is from Ghana, but she grew up in the United States. The way Ya Jesse tells stories is so cinematic, even when nothing is happening. I am really impressed with how well this book captured my attention, even though it's not super plotty. You know what I mean? It's not like there's a strong storyline. She does this and then she does that and she does that. It's really like it's quiet, but it is captivating. The motivations behind why our main character studies what she studies is really heartbreaking in a beautiful way. Content warnings for drug use, addiction, and mental health. So that was Transcendent Kingdom by Ya Jesse. Now, next up is Scorched Grace by Margot Duahi. Okay, I gotta give you this pitch. This is, at the center, a nun who is queer, who is tattooed, who is a musician, who smokes and drinks and curses (laughs) and solves mystery. If that doesn't light you up, I don't know. I don't know who you are. Do you have a heart? One trope that I have found I really enjoy reading is bad Catholics. Growing up Catholic, I find it very familiar and I identify as a bad cultural Catholic. I don't practice, but, you know, I grew up culturally Catholic and it just feels really familiar to me. And this is a character, much like Marikita and I said about Damani in Your Driver is Waiting. This is a character I have not seen before. I have not seen a crime-fighting, tattooed, smoking, cursing, drinking nun. I mean, she's great. Her name is Sister Holiday. There's a arson happens at the convent, and the fire marshal is saying, like, "Mm, it was an accident, or, you know, it was innocent, but she knows. Sister Holiday knows. There's nothing innocent about this arson. And so we follow her background. We follow why she entered the ministry. It is rooted in religion without being preachy, if that makes sense. Like there are lots of references to God and it's clear to her that she has a very spiritual moral compass, but it's not like, it's not preachy about it. It's not like, you're not going to feel bad (laughs) about not being Christian if you read this book, if that makes sense, because she's very generous and kind and understanding and worldly. It's not just a Catholic novel. It's bad Catholics, which I'm always and forever here for. So that's Scorched Grace by Margot Duat. And finally, the first five-star book I read this year was Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. Now, this is a book for those of you who like Stephen Graham Jones. So indigenous horror is one of my go-to genres these days. So this is speculative fiction. It's horror. It's beautifully written. Like, 
Jessica Johns has a way with words. So we are, we follow a young Cree woman in Canada. She's living in Vancouver. She starts to have these really vivid dreams. And then she wakes up with objects from her dreams, tangible objects in her hand. And she notices there are crows following her. Some weird things are just happening in her day-to-day life. What we learn is her sister died a few years ago, and she never went back for the funeral. So she goes back to the prairie where she grew up, and it's her first time back in several years. She reconnects with her family. The love and care that the women, the aunties and her family show her, her aunties, her cousin, her remaining sister, her mom, all kind of work together to try to figure out why is she having these nightmares and what do they mean and how do they relate to her deceased sister. It's a beautiful portrait of family with an element of gruesome horror. Now, I will say I don't find it scary. I found it kind of gory, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of like decay and imagery that is just like icky. (laughs) But I wouldn't call it like a jump out of your seat scary nightmare kind of thing. There's an element of supernatural, which to me keeps it at arm's length. So I think that if you like thrillers and and maybe speculative fiction, if you want to dip your feet into the horror genre, this is a really good like bridge to full-on creep-you-out horror. (laughs) So that was Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. And those are the seven books. I'm going to name them again. Goodbye Earl by Lisa Cross-Smith. The Golden Spoon by Jess Maxwell, Your Driver is Waiting by Priya Guns, Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, Transcendent Kingdom by Yad Jesse, Scorched Grace by Margot Dewahi, and Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. Those are my seven five-star books of the year so far. So if you like this segment, let me know, and I will keep you updated on my five-star reads. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi. And with us today is Iris Yamashita. Iris is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter for the movie Letters from Iwo Jima. But today, we are going to be discussing her debut novel, a thriller titled City Under One Roof, that was published on January 10th of this year. Iris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm super excited for this conversation. Right off the bat, can you tell us what City Under One Roof is about and what inspired you to write this story? It's about Kara Kennedy, who's a female detective, and she's trying to solve a very gruesome murder in a tiny Alaskan town where a foot and a hand have washed up on the cove. And the interesting thing about the city is that all the full-time residents live in a single high-rise building. It's inspired by a real city in Alaska where most of the residents do live in a single building. And the only way to access this town is through a single lane tunnel through a mountain. And of course, my protagonist gets trapped there after an avalanche closes the tunnel and it becomes a lock city mystery. And it seems like everyone, including the protagonist, has a secret motive for being there. And I've told it in three voices. So I have the investigator, Kara Kennedy. And then I have a teen named Amy Lynn, who's the one who discovers the part, the body parts, and whose mother runs the local Chinese restaurant. And then my third voice is Lonnie Mercer. 
and she's also a resident and she has a mental disability, which makes her talk in word salads. And she has a pet moose named Denny. Yes, I love the pet moose part of this story. During your research for this novel, was there anything that stood out to you as interesting or important that you then decided had to be included in the story? Well, you know, the the town itself, the uniqueness of it that everyone lives in a single building was the first thing that captured my attention. And then as I started doing research, there were certain aspects of it that I wanted to include. After doing research, finding out that Alaska has a high rate of violence against women. About 60% of women in Alaska have experienced some kind of violence. And Alaska is a, is a state with the highest homicide rate in the nation of women killed by men. So this was an aspect that I learned while researching, and it's included in the story. It's not the central focus of the story, but I touch on it. I am writing a second book, which touches a, a little bit more on that subject. Awesome. So you are a screenwriter. So how did the process differ between writing for that versus writing this novel? The, the basic storytelling tenets are the same. Uh, I learned from screenwriting a little bit more about how to construct a story. Even though I've always wanted to write a novel, I think working in the screenwriting world, I learned some of the more basic things about how to tell a story and the importance of character arcs and what the parts of the beginning and the middle and the end should include. So those cross over, but the format is very different. You know, with a screenplay, it's about a hundred pages, give or take, and a lot of white space. So it's a lot easier to finish, whereas a novel is a lot more excruciating to write. It takes a lot more time. You're very concerned about all the details. When you're screenwriting, you're just kind of a cog in the wheel because there's so many parts in, in making a movie that involve, you know, a director, a producer, all the crew. And there's so many people involved and so much money involved. And you're just sort of a piece. And when you're writing a book, you're all of that. You're the director. You're not just the writer, you're also the costume designer and the casting director and the set designer. So you have to wear a lot of hats to write a book. But it's also much more satisfying because it's pretty much you. <laughs> it's your voice and what you want to write. And it's no. A lot of times in screenwriting, you're working off of someone else's IP. So that's like a book or a remake or someone else's idea or something that you don't own. Usually the producer owns some kind of intellectual property and you're just being hired to write someone else's vision. Did you find that you prefer one over the other or do you like them both kind of the same? I would say I prefer writing a novel. It's much more, you know, what you want to write. Whereas I think for for screenplay, many times it's what the collective wants to write. You know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. people giving you opinions and sometimes <laughs> it feels like you're writing by community. But I do really appreciate that I can get health insurance as <laughs> a writer's killed writing mm -hmm. screenplays. And it is much quicker. So you can juggle many. I'm usually working on several screenplay projects at once. 
Whereas I think a novel requires so much more focus. You can only really work on the novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that, especially with all the research and time that goes into making a novel. And you talked about this earlier, but in your book, it's told from the perspective of the three women, Amy, Karen, Lonnie. Could you explain a little bit more as to why you chose these three women to tell the story? Yeah, I don't really know. I know for sure, obviously, we're going to have the investigator, her voice. But why I chose Amy and Lonnie, I think it's because I wanted to have distinguishable voices so that each chapter, when they're talking, they had a unique voice, so you know who's talking. And so Lottie, I wanted to do her because it's a very unique voice that I wanted to try, where she doesn't think the way everyone else thinks. And then being able to have kind of the word salads in there, I wanted to try that. And then I think I chose Amy because, again, it was different from Kara and Lonnie in that she was a teen. She had a different feeling of being holed up in this this building than than probably the adults did. And I wanted to explore that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I loved having the three different perspectives. It was very interesting. And this book also details several different mental illnesses and traumas that the characters experienced in their past. Many thrillers use kind of the trope where the woman is found to be either unreliable or quote-unquote crazy because of the psychological issues they have to deal with. How are you able to incorporate mental illness into the story without making the characters seem flawed or that the women turn out to be quote-unquote crazy ones? And why was it important for you to include this aspect? I always wanted to be respectful. I wanted to think of mental illness as more of a, they have a different way of thinking, but it doesn't mean they're lesser or greater. It's just that their way of thinking is very different. For instance, Lonnie, even though she has a mental disability, is very intuitive and she has a prominent role in the community. And also the idea of community in general, because this is a small community and how showing how the residents in a way kind of depend on each other or look out for each other. Or a lot of times there is the outside can't get in. So they really have to just depend on each other. So that was one aspect that I did want to bring out about the community. I think that a lot of people have to deal with different times of anxiety. It's not that uncommon, I think. And I don't want it to be like something negative, but just something that is part of you. It's part of you and it adds character and it adds atmosphere. So it's interesting. I mean, as a story writer, you always want to look at characters that are interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, if they were just perfectly normal, that's pretty boring. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So both the main and the side characters in this story have secrets they're trying to keep and past that it seems like they're trying to outrun. Their individual and unique stories made this book so interesting and the characters memorable. What was it like creating these characters and where did that inspiration come from? It changes as you're writing. I'm sure a lot of writers say this, your characters start to speak to you and they come alive. You don't know a lot of times where it's going to go. I do have a general outline, but as far as the characters, they kind of evolved in the process of writing them. Like I didn't know what 
the teenager, Amy Lynn, what her secret was when I started writing. And it just kind of came out after a while. And even the protagonist, I had a general sense of what her story was, but she also evolved. Like I didn't have her being claustrophobic in the beginning, but the nature of the city is that it's very claustrophobic and that kind of tied in with her past as well. So it seemed to... Do you find yourself like as you're writing these stories end up kind of having a favorite character or one that you love the most? Yeah, I liked Lonnie the best, (laughs) but she was also the most difficult to write. So I only have short chapters with her, but I enjoyed her character, but enjoying a character and how easy they have to write are two different things because she was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, you're working on another novel. Is this a sequel to A City Under One Roof or is it something entirely different? If you can share that. Yeah, it is actually a sequel to this book. Oh, that's very exciting. So will we see a lot of the same characters or some of the same characters? I'll say there will be some familiar characters and then some new faces as well. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited for that. Is there something that you want the readers to take away from this novel after they finished reading? I had mentioned earlier the kind of the themes that run through about community and about this idea that Alaska is a dangerous place for women because that will also carry over into the second book. And then a more fun theme that I have running through the book is Alice in Wonderland references. So if you can spot that, that's going to be fun. It was a a springboard, actually, for me thinking about this tunnel. This very long and narrow tunnel is like the rabbit hole where you're falling into this hole and you're going to end up in this very strange wonderland full of quirky characters. So that was a springboard. And I think of Kara being the main uh, protagonist being the Alice, who is the outsider dropping into this kind of strange world. And I think of Amy, the teenager, she's sort of the white rabbit character that chases for clues. And Lonnie Mercer, because she wears a different colored beret every day, she's sort of the Mad Hatter character. And there are many, many more Wonderland references in the book. So if you can spot that, that'd be really fun. That is a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Iris, for coming on and talking about City Under One Roof. I am anxiously awaiting the next installment of this story. So if you haven't read this book yet, I highly recommend going out and getting it. Thank you so much, Jordi. It's been such a pleasure being here. Allow me to introduce you to Madame Rastel by Jennifer Wright. Out now from Hachette Books. Madame Rastel is a sharp, witty, Gilded Age medical history which introduces us to an iconic yet tragically overlooked feminist heroine, a glamorous women's healthcare provider in Manhattan known to the world as Madame Rastel. A celebrity in her day with a flair for high fashion and public petty beefs, Rastel was a self-made woman and a single mother who used her wit, her compassion, and her knowledge of family medicine to become one of the most in-demand medical workers in New York. 
Before the 19th century, abortion and birth control were not only legal in the United States, but fairly common. And public health care needs for women and men alike were largely handled by midwives and female healers. However, after the birth of the clinic, newly minted MDs, newly minted male MDs wanted to push women out of their space by forcing women back into the home and turning medicine into a standardized male-only practice. By unraveling the misogynistic and misleading lives that put women's health in jeopardy, Wright simultaneously restores Ristel to her rightful place in history and obliterates the faulty, fractured reasoning underlying the very foundation of what has since been dubbed the pro thought-provoking, character-driven, and funny and feminist as all hell. Madame Ristel is required reading for anyone and everyone who believes that when it comes to women's rights, women's bodies, and women's history, women should have the last word. Pick up your copy of Madame Ristel, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist by Jennifer Wright, out now from Hachette Books. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a dangerous creature, creature.